On July 21st, 1861, Union and Confederate troops clashed in what became known as the Battle of Bull Run, not far from Washington, D.C. The Union went into the conflict very confident of an easy victory. They thought they would likely cripple the Confederacy and the war would be over almost as quickly as it had started. Union General Irvin McDowell did not expect the Southerners to put up much of a fight. Since a Union victory seemed inevitable, high society ladies and gentlemen from the North, from the D.C. area, came down to watch. These socialites packed picnic baskets, they rode in fancy carriages, they came to take in what was sure to be the social event of the summer. But the day turned out very differently than expected. The picnic for socialites became a bloodbath. The battlefield was chaotic, the fighting was fierce and bloody. For a long stretch, General Jackson of the Confederacy led his men to bravely stand their ground against heavy fire, uh, an event which in turn earned for him the nickname Stonewall. There stood, stood Jackson like a stone wall, uh, was written later about the event. In the battle's climactic moment, he led his men in a bayonet charge that proved decisive, and the Confederacy won a stunning upset. As the Union soldiers retreated in disarray, the spectators fled as well, running for their lives. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about that particular battle we could pull out. A lot of lessons could be learned from both sides. But here's the point I want to make. Here's what I want to draw out from it. Some people show up to church like those spectators showed up to watch the battle of Bull Run. They show up expecting to be spectators at church. They show up at church expecting it to be a great social event. They come for the socializing, as it were. In reality, the church is involved in a great cosmic battle. We come together to wage war. We come together to fight. And the only way to win in this battle is to be prepared for the fight. We can't underestimate the enemy, and we have to know how to use the weapons we have been given. Paul wrote to Timothy to prepare him for the fight that his ministry would involve him in. He wrote this letter to encourage Timothy and his congregation to fight the good fight. This sermon this morning really serves two purposes. First, it is a charge to John Crawford as a, a newly ordained uh, ruling elder at our church plant in Greenville. This is a charge to him. But it is also a charge to all of you. It is a charge to engage in the warfare every Christian is called to fight. And so I would really say the two purpose of the, uh, purposes of this sermon match the two purposes that I believe the Apostle Paul had in writing this letter to Timothy. First, obviously, this is addressed to Timothy, this letter, uh, it says that at the very beginning, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor. Timothy is an officer in the church. Timothy is Paul's protege. Timothy is a pastor and a church planter in Ephesus, and he needs encouragement because he is facing all kinds of challenges. He is young for this work, and people might despise him because of his youth. He's got chronic health struggles, and Paul will actually tell him to take a little bit of wine uh, to help alleviate those chronic health struggles. He's facing false teachers who have infiltrated the church and who will seek to undermine and even destroy his work. And on top of all of that, Timothy is a rather timid soul. 
And so Paul, as his mentor, writes to encourage him, that is to instill courage in his heart. Paul writes to guide him, to give him wisdom for the warfare he'll be waging, the warfare he'll be facing. Paul writes to give him wisdom he'll need to build up God's house. He's a house builder as a pastor. He's going to need wisdom for this task. See, what this letter shows you, all the pastoral epistles, what they show us is that pastors need pastoring, shepherds need shepherding, elders need eldering, and that's what Paul is doing in this letter. This letter, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, they're known as the pastoral epistles. To pastor, or to shepherd, that'd be a synonymous term in this context. In this context, it means to care for souls. It means to give spiritual care to another But those who give care also need to be given care. And that's what Paul's doing in this letter. That's, again, why we call these the pastoral epistles. In this letter, Paul is pastoring a pastor. He's writing to a pastor, to a church leader, to equip him for the work of the ministry. Through this letter, Paul is caring for Timothy's soul so he can care for the souls of others. Now, John has been ordained to the office of ruling elder, not the office of pastor, and there is a distinction there. But pastors and ruling elders share a number of responsibilities. They certainly share shepherding responsibilities within the congregation. So this letter applies to to John. It applies to ruling elders. It applies to every man God calls to the office of elder. Just as Timothy can draw strength from Paul's words, so John can, so every man who's called to lead in the church can draw strength and wisdom from the words Paul writes. That's one purpose of this letter. It's a charge to Timothy. It's pastoring Timothy, the pastor. But second, we know Paul wrote this letter to be read not only by Timothy on his own, but to be read by Timothy to the whole congregation as well, or at least to have its contents taught to the whole congregation. There's a, there, there are many parts of this letter that only make sense if we understand that it was designed for the whole congregation, for the whole church to take in. That's why it's part of the canon of Scripture, which is given to the whole church. It's really a charge to all of us. So in this letter, Paul pastors Timothy, and then through this letter, guides Timothy in his pastoring of his own congregation. This letter tells us how to live together as the church. It shapes the mission we undertake together, the warfare we wage together. It shapes the kind of community life God calls us to have as his people. Now, I've read for us chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, and I'm focusing on these verses because I believe they summarize a number of key themes in this letter. In verse 18, Paul says he is giving Timothy a charge. Again, that's really descriptive of this whole letter. It is a charge. That word charge really describes a a military-like command. It's like Timothy is a soldier, he's being commanded. Paul is entrusting Timothy with a mission, with a ministry. Timothy is to guard the truth and advance the truth. It's interesting too here that Paul calls Timothy a son. Paul calls Timothy his son. Now, we actually know quite a bit about the relationship that Paul and Timothy had with one another. We know quite a bit about Timothy's background Uh, from the rest of the New Testament. Certainly, Timothy is not as major of a figure as Paul in the New Testament, but he's still a very significant figure in the New Testament. And Paul very clearly becomes Timothy's spiritual father. 
And like any good father, he wants to teach Timothy everything he knows. He wants to encourage and equip Timothy even as he stretches and challenges him because that's what fathers do. They encourage and they exhort. That's what fathers do. Paul is his mentor, his example, his guide. It's kind of like planting and pastoring churches is the family business, and Paul wants Timothy to inherit it. And he wants him to be able to run this family business of planting and pastoring churches well. That makes the pastoral epistles, this father-son relationship that's right at the the center of, of all of this, it makes the pastoral epistles really a lot like the book of Proverbs. Think about what the book of Proverbs is. In Proverbs, you have a father who is imprinting his own wisdom onto his son. He is imparting his wisdom as a father to his son. And he's doing this so that his son, obviously the father is the king, that makes the son the prince. The father is doing this so his son can grow up to rule well. So he can rule wisely, so he can fight wisely, so he can build wisely. That's what's happening here. Paul is impressing his own wisdom upon Timothy. He's imparting his wisdom to Timothy so Timothy can rule the church well, so he can exercise his authority as an officer in a way that will lead the whole congregation to flourish. Because officers really do have authority, and they have to know how to use it. They have to know how to wield that authority. Paul is showing Timothy how to do that wisely, how to do that well, for the good of the congregation, so the whole community can flourish. That Paul refers to Timothy as his son multiple times is really important. Paul opens this letter calling Timothy my true son in the faith in verse 2. Here again, in in the verse we've just read, he calls him his son. Uh, So we know that there's this father-son relationship and this fatherhood and sonship That's really at the center, again, of this this whole letter. But it's interesting to consider this in light of Timothy's background, his life story. We know that Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And uh, his father must have been a real opponent of the faith. He, for example, did not allow Timothy to be circumcised as an infant. So actually, Jews would have considered Timothy to be illegitimate. Yes, he had a believing mother, but he had a pagan father. And Paul, at the very beginning of this letter, and then here again in verse 18, he he calls Timothy his son. He says, my true son, as if to say to Timothy, they might say you're illegitimate, but I don't. I say you're a true son. You are a true son of God, and you're a true son of mine. You are a true son. Now, what else do we know about this, this, this Paul-Timothy relationship? Well, Paul and Timothy meet in Acts 16 in Lystra. And because Timothy had been taught the scriptures from his childhood by his mother and grandmother, he saw Timothy as a good prospect for the ministry. And so Paul began to take Timothy along with him on his missionary journeys. And so Paul and Timothy spent a great deal of time traveling together. They traveled together extensively. And you can read about this in Acts, how Timothy joins Paul uh, in his missionary travels. That happened until Timothy finally settled down in Ephesus to continue the work that Paul started there. Paul planted a church in Ephesus Timothy settles there to pastor that church, to carry on a a pastoral and evangelistic ministry there, to pastor the church that has been planted and most likely to plant other churches as well. But this is really the point. In Christ, 
Paul became a father to Timothy, and Timothy became a son to Paul. What does that tell you about the church? What does that tell you about the relationships we have in the church? That tells you the church is family. Look around this room. This is your family. The church is a spiritual family, a household. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul calls the church the household of God. He's saying, I'm writing instructions for you so you'll know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. This is how we do things as a family. So Paul says to Timothy, you're my true son. You're not illegitimate. I have fathered you in Christ. Timothy, in turn, will become a father to the people he pastors. The people he mentors. Church officers, especially in the body of Christ, church officers are especially to be seen as spiritual fathers. That's what it means to be a church officer. It means to be a spiritual father in the church. Indeed, in the church, because we are one big family, we are all fathers and mothers or sons and daughters to one another. We are all brothers and sisters to one another. That's actually Jesus' promise in Matthew 19, that even if you have to give up your earthly mother or father or your earthly siblings, because of your faithfulness to Christ, in the church you'll get that all back. In the church, we have many fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. But if the church is family, what's that mean? It means we have to live as family. And this is so important to see in our day. You know, in our day, the natural family is falling apart. That's really the root of so many of our social ills. The natural family is breaking down. And in a time like this, it is especially important for the church to live as family. That doesn't negate the importance of your natural family. But the church family is your forever family. This is the family that will endure, that will exist for all eternity. And this is one of many reasons why you can't really do church without committing yourself to a particular congregation, without getting attached and, and putting down roots. You can't really say we're family if you're not really connected with one another and getting to know one another. This is also why you can't just do church online. That's what a lot of people are, are doing these days. They quit going to church during COVID and they've never come back. You can't do church that way because church is family. You can't be family unless you gather. You, you can't really serve others from your sofa. Church is not a spectator sport. We're not spectators. We're soldiers. We're not watching the battle, we're fighting it. We're, we're not consumers, we're a community. And we're all to be contributors to that community. We are to share life together. Relationships matter. And that means as much as possible, as much as we're able, we need to be gathering together. There's no replacement for that in-person, face-to-face fellowship God calls us to share as members of his family. I'll tell you this. Regularly attending church is more important than anything else you do. Regularly attending church is more important than your daily quiet time. Do both. You know, have your time in the Word every day. That's great. Have your time in prayer. But understand the centrality of the church family. Everything else flows out of this gathering here. This gathering right now is the most important thing you will do all week. Because this gathering here lays the foundation for everything else you're called to do throughout the week. We are God's family. And when we come together, when we gather around the family table, our Heavenly Father gives us His gifts. He strengthens the bonds between us, and He equips us for everything He calls us to do. And that is why the church is among God's very best blessings to us. The communion of the saints 
is among the greatest of God's gifts to his people. You need the church and the church needs you. You need to share in that communion, that community, that family life God has called us into. Now, it's also interesting, Paul mentions prophecies made concerning Timothy. This is probably a reference to what happened at his ordination. You witnessed an ordination today. Uh, the, the, the prophecies that Paul talks about here, these prophecies were probably spoken at Timothy's ordination to church office. They probably confirmed his call to the ministry, may have even given him direction about what he would do or should do as a pastor. And, and I say this because if you go back and look at the book of Acts, you can see there are a number of times where there are prophecies spoken over the apostle Paul. And I'm guessing something like that happened with Timothy. Now you might say, well, where are the prophecies being spoken over John today? Do we have prophecies to make over John Crawford at his ordination? Well, understand, this gift of prophecy was important for the church in the apostolic era, while the scriptures were still being written. Uh, this, this gift of prophecy was functional during that time. Uh, but this gift, I believe, has ceased since 70 A.D., with the completion of the biblical canon, with the destruction of the temple, uh, that gift has ceased. God is not giving new revelation, new prophecy in that sense, because we have this. We have the completed canon of scripture. We have everything we need right here. We don't need additional prophecies, additional revelation from God. The Bible is complete. We have the perfect word of God. We don't need those supplemental prophecies they did during that time before the New Testament was complete. And so today when a man is ordained, we don't have prophecies concerning him, but we do have a charge that is based on scripture. It's not new revelation, what I'm doing right now in charging John, but it explains and applies revelation that's already been given to the man who has been ordained. Okay, again, that's what I'm doing today, and that's, uh, I, I think, the right way to apply this. So these prophecies were most likely given at Timothy's ordination. Paul refers to Timothy's ordination to church office elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, he says that Timothy had hands laid on him by presbytery. Presbytery there just means a body of elders. That's exactly what you saw happen this morning. A body of elders, presbytery in that sense, laid hands on John and ordained him to office. What is ordination? Ordination sets a man apart within the community. Ordination gives the man a different status, a new identity, a new role to play. It bestows upon him certain responsibilities and privileges. Think about a marriage. You know, somebody gets married. They woke up that morning. They're, they're, they're a single person. you got two single people. They go through this ceremony we call a marriage, and now the two have become one. And they've got new identity, new status, new roles, new privileges, new responsibilities. So it is with ordination. It's a ceremony which God affects something. God takes a man who is a layman, who is a member of a church, and through that ordination ceremony, God gives this man a new name, a new identity, a new role, an office. God makes that man into an elder. That's what we saw happen this morning. Paul continues here. Paul says this is all... All of this is so that Timothy may fight the good fight. Now, what is this good fight? The Christian life is described in many different ways in Scripture. Sometimes it's called a walk. You know, we're to 
walk in the Spirit. Sometimes it's called a race. We're to run the race and cross the finish line. Christians are sometimes described as plants or trees or vines that are to grow. These are all metaphors that are used to describe the Christian life. Here Paul uses a military metaphor, a martial metaphor, and this is one of the most common metaphors Paul uses to describe the Christian life. Think about Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says we are to put on the whole armor of God so we may stand against the wiles of the devil. He says we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. We've got a battle we're called to fight. We've been given armor to fight. That's how he describes the Christian life in Ephesians 6. In Galatians 5, he describes the Christian life in terms of the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit that God has put in us, the spirit warring against the flesh. In 1 Timothy 6, later in this book, Paul will again command Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. There's a fight to be fought. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul puts himself forward as an example. He says, I have fought the good fight. Now he's at the end of his life and he can look back and say, I fought the good fight. In 2 Timothy 2, he says, endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ because that's what you are. Don't get all entangled in worldly affairs. Soldiers can't let themselves do that. Fight as a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the great holy warrior. And in union with him, we have become warriors as well. He is the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army, and we are the troops who follow him into battle. We are his soldiers following him into war. And what is this warfare we are called to wage? We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That means we fight against sin in our own lives. It means we fight against sin in the world around us. And we are called to engage in this spiritual warfare using spiritual weapons. The whole of life, the whole of your life, and indeed the whole of culture, the whole of creation is our battlefield. There's no place you can go where the battle between Christ and Satan is not raging. And so we're called to fight everywhere. As a pastor, really what Paul is saying to Timothy, Paul is saying, look, you're a leader of the Lord's troops. See, Jesus is our five-star general. Jesus is the captain of the Lord's army. He is the king. You see this in Revelation 19, riding on his white horse out into battle, leading the way with the saints following behind him. But really what Paul is saying here is, look, pastors and elders are leaders in the Lord's army under Christ's authority. Pastors and elders in the church are serving on the front lines, leading the congregation into their spiritual warfare. Pastors and elders lead the saints into battle as Christ's representatives, as commanding officers in the army of the church. Pastors and elders are like lieutenants and colonels in the Lord's army, all, of course, under the ultimate lordship of King Jesus. This is how Leslie Newbigin describes it. I really like this. He says, the church is a body which exists as a sign of God's rule over all things. The existence of the church and the way the church lives and acts and professes, this is a sign and a pointer to Christ's rule over all things. The church is a, is a signpost pointing to God's rule over all things. But then this is what he says. He says, church officers are not like generals who sit at headquarters and send out troops into battle. Rather, they go at their head and take the brunt of the enemy attack. They enable and encourage members by leading them, not just by telling them. 
In this picture, the words of Jesus have a quite different force. They find all their meaning in the central key word, follow me. The task of ministry is to lead the congregation as a whole in a mission to the community as a whole to claim its whole public life as well as the personal lives of all its people for God's rule. It means equipping all the members of the congregation to understand and fulfill their several roles in this mission through their faithfulness in their daily work. It means training and equipping them to be active followers of Jesus in his assault on the principalities and powers which he disarmed at the cross. And it means sustaining them and bearing the cost of that warfare. We're all called to fight. But officers, those in the ministry are called to lead the way. They don't just tell you what to do. They lead you into battle. In chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, we're to fight the good fight of faith. That's the fight we're called to. Now, the, the, the fight of faith, you might ask, well, what does that mean? The fight of faith. Faith there means not just the act of believing. Okay, that's important that you fight to, to, to believe yourself. But it also refers to the content of truth that we believe. The content of truth about God we believe. The faith in that objective sense. The faith that has content, that, that doctrinal content. That's the faith we're called to fight for. That body of teaching, what is sometimes called sound doctrine in the pastoral epistles, Orthodoxy, okay, we sometimes refer to it as, that's what we're called to fight for. That body of truth, we fight to advance it. It's what we defend against attack. That truth that is found in God's word. And it's interesting, if you look at the whole history of the church, really in a way, the whole history of the church can be told as the story of fighting the good fight of the faith. The whole history of the church is largely the history of one doctrinal fight after another. In the days of the early church, those first few centuries, early Christians fought for the truth of the Trinity and for the truth of the deity of Christ. In the Reformation era, they fought for and defended the truths of God's sovereign grace and salvation and justification by faith. In the 20th century, Christians defended the inspiration and errancy and infallibility of the Bible against those who were denying those things, attacking the Bible. Today, we fight for and defend the Bible's teaching on sex, sexuality, and marriage. Those are the things that are under attack. Now, not every fight Christians engage in is a good fight. Nobody says we're to fight the good fight. Some fights are bad fights. They're unnecessary, they're counterproductive, Paul warns Timothy, in fact, a, a number of times about fighting bad fights. Several places in the pastoral epistles, you have warnings about this. These are fights where we hit each other with, friend, with friendly fire. Paul's very clear. He says to avoid unnecessary quarrels and useless controversies. There are some fights that are not worth having. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 3, when he's laying out the qualifications for an officer in the church, he says that an elder is not to be quarrelsome or contentious, or cantankerous. If you're a quarrelsome man, you're not fit to be an officer. You can't just want to fight for the sake of fighting. That's fighting the bad fight. We're called to fight the good fight. So church leaders have to know when to advance aggressively in the good fight for the truth, and when to back off lest we fight a bad fight that's not worth having. But clearly, here, warfare is a necessary component of the Christian life. Fighting the good fight is fighting for the faith. It's fighting for God's truth. 
And again, elders are like ranking officers who lead and direct the troops, who strategize, who analyze the tactics and ways of our enemy so we can understand what we're up against. Uh, they're the ones who help us better use our weapons. They're the ones who train and discipline the troops in the truth. And this is why before men can be ordained to church office, they have to be trained and tested themselves. They've got to be uh, approved for this work by others who already uh, have been entered into this work. A man has to be called to this office. He doesn't just take it upon himself. And this is a calling that comes from above by the work of the Holy Spirit and also a calling that comes from below through the congregation. And that's why every time you see officers, I shouldn't say every time, but just repeatedly as a pattern in Scripture, you see officers being chosen by members of the church. You see this in the Old Testament, like in Exodus, where they chose men to be their rulers. You see this in the book of Acts, where the early church is choosing the, the men who will be their rulers. That's the way. There's this call from above by the Holy Spirit, this call from below, from the congregation. So John, understand, when you return to Greenville, you will be reporting for duty to lead the troops there. Lord willing, we'll get you reinforcements as soon as possible in the form of other officers. But just know, there is a fight to be fought. There are soldiers to be led into battle. You have your marching orders. You've been entrusted with a mission. You know, it's like we sing in that hymn for all the saints. Oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. That's the mission. That's the task. That's the fight we're called to. Pastors and elders lead the way in this warfare. We fight with and for the truth of God's word. But Paul goes on from here. I want to show you something else here. Paul then turns to another way we fight the good fight, especially a way that elders in the church fight the good fight. And this is church discipline. He speaks here of those who have shipwrecked the faith and thus have been handed over to Satan. He speaks of those who have shipwrecked the faith. See here, Paul uh, he, he's described Christians as soldiers, but it's not only that, we're also sailors. The problem is, some of those sailors make shipwreck of their faith. And Paul here names names because these are false teachers he wants Timothy to be aware of so he can mark them and avoid their errors. He mentions Alexander and Hymenaeus. These were probably pastors or elders in the church who have fallen away from the truth. They're probably peers of Timothy uh, who have turned away. Paul is describing their apostasy in terms of shipwreck. And he describes their excommunication in terms of being handed over to Satan. Now let's explore what Paul says here a little bit, because this is really important. In verse 19, Paul speaks of the faith and a good conscience. Okay, what did these men abandon? They abandoned the faith, they shipwrecked the faith, and they abandoned a good conscience. What does that mean? Faith and conscience are linked. Faith has to do with what we believe. Conscience has to do with how we live. Faith has to do with doctrine. Conscience has to do with practice. And these are always inseparable. All theology is practical. All practice is theological. Sometimes people will, will abandon the doctrines of the faith. And when they do, it sends their practice off course. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. Other times people will engage in some sinful practice and then they will change their theology to justify it. Bad living leads to bad doctrine. 
So you can get it bad, you can get it wrong either way. Now let me give you a couple examples of this, and Paul names names here, so I'll name names as well, so you know exactly the kinds of uh, things I'm talking about here. So let me give you a couple examples of this happening each way. Tullian Shavidian was a pastor in a conservative Presbyterian denomination. And he taught in his sermons and in a number of books that you should not put forth effort to obey God's law because effort is legalistic. Effort leads to self-righteousness. Indeed, effort is a sign of self-righteousness. Now, that's bad theology. That's just bad theology straight out. Of course, we have to make an effort to obey God's law. There's all kinds of teaching in Scripture about that. But in Tully Shavidian's case, his bad theology led to bad practice. He was eventually caught in an adulterous relationship, which is something that many people predicted would happen. He really was just living out his theology, not putting forth any effort to guard his marriage. Or take another example of this. There is now a gay Christian movement that is making headway and gaining momentum, again, in conservative uh, Christian circles and evangelical circles. This is led by uh, people like Pastor Greg Johnson and the Revoice Conferences, and they promote effeminacy, gay culture. Uh, I would say they promote sexual confusion. They say that same-sex sexual desire is not sinful, provided you don't act on it. And now there are huge swaths of once conservative denominations that are on the verge of changing their theology to accommodate these practices, to accommodate these desires and this culture. Here you have bad practice producing bad theology. Those things have to be addressed. They have to be corrected. Church leaders have to be able and willing to correct and rebuke. Now they have to do so lovingly, even as they do so firmly, and that's not always easy to lovingly and firmly correct, but it is necessary. It is necessary to preserve and defend the faith. At the end of this letter, Paul says, O Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust. It's going to come under attack. You've got to guard it. You've got to repel those attacks. Now, Paul here names Alexander and Hymenaeus. We actually learn a little bit about these two guys, we learn a little bit more about them elsewhere. In 2 Timothy 2, we learn that Hymenaeus' error was claiming that the resurrection has already happened. The only resurrection there is has already happened. There's not any future bodily resurrection to look ahead to. It's kind of the, the beginnings of Gnosticism in the church. That's how he strayed from the truth, Paul tells us there. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul speaks of Alexander. may not be the same Alexander, but assuming that it is, he speaks of Alexander as one who harmed him most likely by attacking his teaching or perhaps lying about him, bearing false witness against him. Whatever the case, these men were in error. They're named, they're marked, their sins are addressed. See, when a church member falls into serious doctrinal or moral error, Scripture tells us exactly what should happen. There is a church discipline process laid out for us in passages like Matthew 18. Church discipline is a way elders fight the good fight of faith. Church discipline is a form of warfare against denials and distortions of the truth. It is one of the church's spiritual weapons that must be wielded for the good of all, for the good of the whole church, but also for the good of the one who is in error. Paul says he has delivered these men over to Satan. That is the same language found in 1 Corinthians 5 for excommunication. 
Excommunication is when the church, through her officers, declare that someone can no longer be recognized as a Christian. And so he is no longer welcome to the Lord's table. He's excommunicated. He is out of communion. And the hope, of course, is that he will be restored, but it's a declaration that has to be made. You know, some have to be thrown overboard in order to appreciate the safety of the ship that is the church. And that's what happens when people are handed over to Satan. It means they're no longer under God's fatherly care and protection. They can no longer claim his promises as their own because they're not living like children anymore. They've they've been cast out. But excommunication does not have to be the last word. The goal of excommunication is not merely to punish the offender, but to lead him to repentance. And I think you see that hinted at even here. These men shipwrecked the faith, but you know who else got shipwrecked? Paul. Paul got, he didn't shipwreck his faith. He got literally shipwrecked, but he was delivered. He was rescued from that. A shipwreck does not have to be the end. These men also could be delivered from their shipwreck if they would turn back to the truth. These men have been handed over to Satan. Well, there was a man handed over to Satan in 1 Corinthians 5 because of his sin, but he repented, and we find in 2 Corinthians he has been restored. Paul says he wants these two men to be taught to not blaspheme God's truth, but that blasphemy can be forgiven if they will repent. In fact, just a few verses before this, Paul says that he was a blasphemer. He blasphemed against God, but obviously he was forgiven. These men can't be too. So excommunication, while serious, it's always hopeful. It is the spiritual death penalty, but God can raise the dead. It's so important to understand the significance of church discipline. You ever wonder how things in the church got so messed up? While we have so many churches that really look more like synagogues of Satan than they do churches of the Lord Jesus Christ that that disregard the scriptures and teach all kinds of things contrary to to scripture. They call themselves churches, but they look like the world. Ever wonder how that happened? This is how it happened. A breakdown in discipline. Today, the church is facing a massive crisis, a failure of nerves. Because elders have failed to practice church discipline. Whole denominations have been overrun by progressives and by liberals over the last 100 plus years because elders were too fearful to exercise church discipline, too fearful to discipline error in their midst, too fearful of offending someone or hurting someone's feelings. Elders who won't exercise discipline are like policemen who won't stop a criminal or like doctors who won't diagnose and treat an illness. Church discipline is the immune system of the body of Christ. There's no health without it. Church discipline is like the the, the borderline between God's holy nation and the world. There can be no holiness in the church without discipline. A loving church will practice discipline. Loving elders will lead the way. Like any authority, church authority can be abused. Sadly, sometimes we see that happen. But when it is exercised faithfully and biblically, the authority that God has entrusted to officers in his church is a great blessing to the whole community. It's for your good. So let me sum this up. What does all this mean? What is the calling of an elder? It is to follow Jesus in leading the troops into battle. Fighting the good fight. 
It's to keep the troops fed with God's word, to keep them well-disciplined. And that's why faithful elders are among God's best gifts to his people. What's the calling of the congregation? It's to receive these gifts, the, the gifts of faithful elders. It's to follow your leaders into battle, fighting the good fight yourself, defending, practicing, and proclaiming God's truth. It's to take God's truth to the front lines in your daily vocation. It's to take God's truth into your relationships and apply it there. And in this way, the church, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, fights the good fight and wins the victory in her warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. This warfare starts in your own heart. It starts in your home. And from there, it spills out into the culture, into the world, as you seek to apply all of God's word to all of life. But understand this. At the center of it all is the church. At the center of it all is this gathering. This is where we gather to gather to launch our all-out assault against the world, the flesh, and the devil. God uses local churches. God uses local churches, elders and congregations, shepherds and flocks, to change the world, to wage his war, and to win the victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings. 